Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Leaders in Supply Chain podcast. I am your host, Radu Palamariu, Global Logistics and Supply Chain Practice Head for Morgan Phillips. My job is to connect you with global experts, thought leaders, and executives in all things supply chain. I will do my best to pick their brains on supply chain and logistics leading-edge technologies, leadership stories, and personal success habits. Welcome to our fifth episode of Leaders in Supply Chain podcast. We are happy to have together with us today Tim Vickman, former CEO of MCC Shipping. Tim has a 27 years career with AP Modamers Group. He served as vice president in, in various portfolios for 10 years. And the last nine years, he was the CEO of MCC the Intra-Asia Shipping Specialist. During his term, the company became one of the most successful organizations in the history. From humble beginnings, made it to the 17th largest liner company in the world in terms, terms of capacity. Uh, among top three feeders globally, operated uh, 90 ships and had over 600 staff in local agencies in 14 countries across Asia. So, great success story. Well, Tim, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Um, so, for today... As our normal series of questions, we will have uh, questions regarding to the shipping industry, questions regarding people and talent, as well as uh, questions regarding personal advice team might want to share with our audience. So without further ado, let's start. Let's deep dive into the first question, which uh, I would really be curious, and I think a lot of our listeners would be, Tim. If you can tell us a little bit about the story of MCC, you know, how did you start from early beginnings to where you left off? Uh, and maybe if you can uh, derive two, three key learnings in terms of uh, the success story. Yeah, I mean, uh, of course, it's a long story, uh, I have to admit, but uh, I'll try to, to make it uh, brief. It, it basically started back in 2007, where we in Merskline, and I was also uh, working for Merskline at that time, where we... Um, through some help from consultancies and, and, and so on, identified that it was an issue that Merskline was not represented in the biggest market in uh, in the big container shipping market in the world. Um, when we looked uh, ahead, uh, basically 10 years ahead where we actually are now, uh, we estimated that close to one out of four containers in the world would be intra-Asia which is obviously uh, a very large share. And when you, as the world's biggest shipping line, have less than 1% market share in, in what is the world's biggest market, then, then you lose out, uh, not just in terms of, of profit, but you also lose out in the biggest growth markets of your biggest uh, customers. Um, and of course, uh, your pursuit of, of lowest possible cost is, is a problem because the scale that you, you have in Asia without being part of, of, of the intra-Asia market is, is actually not uh, that big. So, um, to make a long story short, we concluded that we have to do something in, uh, in intra-Asia and we then spent about six months figuring out how to do that because there was obviously various ways we could uh, we could acquire an intra-Asia shipping line, we could we could set up a, a Maersk intra-Asia services or, or we could do something uh, something different. Um, and that maybe brings me to one of the key learnings that uh, that, that you asked for, uh, being that, that we really listened. We interviewed uh, our own people, we interviewed customers, we interviewed suppliers, we interviewed even competitors. Um, uh, who kindly enough suggested uh, various ideas on what would be successful and what would not. 
And based on this uh, input, we concluded that probably uh, the most successful route to take would be to have our own uh, our own company, and it had to be in the region, and it had to be dedicated to Inter Asia and, and, and nothing else. So, so that's you know that's in three minutes mm. basically how uh, how we decided to uh, to set it up. And then I got the call from the CEO of Merskline, and, and he basically said to me that uh, since I've been talking about Inter Asia for for so long, complaining on why Merskline is not doing anything in Inter Asia, he said, then there you go. Now you go and do it. <laughs> And uh, of course, it was um, it was uh, it, 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 it was a, a huge challenge, but, but also, as I saw it, a huge opportunity because um, being in I mean, say not being in the world's biggest market would mean that in principle you, you can only grow. And that leads me maybe to to the second uh, key learning or, or how we set it up. I mean, we, we, we basically looked at what is Merskline good at, what is what is Safmarine, one of the other brands that Maersk has good at? What, what, what are the popular shipping lines in Indonesia actually good at and why are they uh, successful? Um, and then we decided to build up uh, MCC around, you can say, the best of both worlds, as we, as we call it. Yeah. Um, but it was really from, from the beginning, MCC existed as a, as, as, a, as a feeder operator in Southeast Asia, had 32 ships, had an organization, like a basic organization, only Southeast Asia. So when I came out to, to Singapore, uh, whole Northeast Asia, we, we basically had to start from scratch. Um, and then... Um, we, we appointed a, a, a manager in each of the countries and then we gave some guidelines to these managers and what we then did, maybe very unusual or different than many other companies, we, we, we basically said, you know, these are the guidelines, this is where, this is what we want, we want to we wanna build up into Asia, but how we do it, we leave that up to you. Yeah. Um, so you empowered them to take the best decisions. Mm -hmm. empowerment. We, we basically said, and, and yeah, we basically said anything which is legal, if this is what the market wants, you, you do it. Mm. Don't think about what you have learned in the past. I mean, everyone came actually from, from Maersk. It was key people in Maersk. Don't think about what you have done in Maersk or what you've heard from other companies. I mean, just do what you think is right mm. in terms of uh, setting this up. Of course, uh, a gamble. Mm. And, um, and in some countries, we were incredibly successful very quickly. In some other countries, it, it, it took longer time because very much depended actually on on the manager that we appointed and yeah. and um, and the people that this manager were able to get into to his or her organization. And then I traveled a lot mm. because the, 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 the headquarter, I, I brought with me a, a colleague from Copenhagen that was running actually into Asia for, for Maersk. So he was with me in the headquarter and I just, and actually both of us traveled around a lot, listening again to, to, to people and making sure that all our country managers were on, uh, were on the right path. We had, we had very few like, rules that we had to follow, but, but one of the rules we, we, we set up from the beginning was that there could only be four layers between the lowest rank in the organization mm -hmm. and me. Mm -hmm. um, it has then transpired into now five, but but still, still. We, mm -hmm. have, we have grown from basically nothing to to actually this shipping line with the biggest carrying capacity in into Asia in just eight years. Yeah, um, and we still only have five layers uh, in in our organization, and and 
Of course, I have learned a lot through 27 years, and, and one thing I definitely learned is that the more layers you have in an organization, the longer time it takes to make uh, decisions, and, and 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 having to go through three, four layers of authority and managers, and so I mean, it's, it's just not, it's just not on. If, especially not if you're in a startup uh, and you have to make uh, decisions very, very quickly. And typically clients don't like it as well, right? Because it translates into longer uh, time. In, in, of mm. course, and, and this is why we also uh, gave our countrymen just basically full authority to, to to run the business, including mm. pricing the business. Mm-hmm. And uh, and of course, I mean, looking back, was that 100% successful everywhere? Maybe not. I mean, mm. I, I did hear from some markets that other carriers complaining that MTC is undercutting the market because, I mean, what we didn't have the knowledge in certain markets. We had our cost, um, but not necessarily a knowledge about what's possible to get out of, of the market. So, so maybe we were a little too aggressive in certain markets, but hey, you know, in the first couple of years in a, in a startup like this, you, you need to get... You, you need to get some kind of base and some kind of mass and then when you have reached that then you can start you can say put things more into processes and, and, and so on so so, so we, we had actually a couple of phases as, as we call it mm-hmm. phase one was called explosive growth yeah and I mean how do you reach explosive growth if you have many layers and a lot of bureaucracy mm. and especially not in Asia where, where things move so incredibly fast and decisions must be taken Plus, your client base is very diverse, and it's it's it's, it's extremely also country dependent, and it's people with different needs and different uh, wants and, and and different realities and different geographies and a lot of uh, very localized context. Absolutely, mm-hmm. it's one of the big differences uh, in the inter-Asia market compared mm-hmm. to any other market in the world, uh, and that is that most of the cargo shipped is actually controlled locally. Mm. Uh, it's not nominated from other regions of, of the world. We estimate about 80% of the business is actually controlled locally. Uh, and in some countries, we are talking 90, 95%. Um, so, so this means, obviously, that, that to be sales in, in an inter-Asia company, well, you need to go out and, and, and get the business. You don't get any help from anyone. Mm. So you need to have also the exact right people uh, to, to, to go out and, 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 and pursue this mm. explosive growth. Mm. Um, and, and, and again, some places we, we were incredibly successful, some places it took a little longer, but, but what we did was we, we did a lot of best practice sharing in the beginning, so anything that worked well in one or two countries, we immediately you know, shared to the other country mm-hmm. and said, you know, hey, have you thought about this, have you thought mm-hmm. about that? Um, the funny part was actually that, that those countries where we had to set up ourselves, meaning China, which we have split in three, and, and Taiwan, Korea, and Japan, um, except maybe for Japan, then the, the, the five others were actually where we saw the biggest success when we Plus started. Mm. Whereas Southeast Asia, where we took over an already existing MCC organization, it took a lot longer yeah. uh, to actually grow. And yeah. I would even say it's only the last three, four years that that we have really seen a, a major position taking from, from us in Southeast Asia yeah. as well. So, um, um, and of course that brings uh, other learnings to, yeah. to, to the table. Yeah, but it's, it's very interesting, right? because if we had to summarize, right, it's a, you're starting, I mean, it's, it's the fundamentals seem to, I mean, it's almost like it's universal fundamentals, like listen, ask, ask your clients yes. what they need and listen to what they told you they need. 
keep it simple create a structure that is simple and and you know four or five layers that's it and it's uh, I mean uh, if only more companies were like that um, give empowerment I mean empower your people to take the right decisions do what's right not follow some norms and I mean it's uh, it's, uh, it's it's great and then communicate share best best practices so no yeah super and, and then there's one uh, both you know when you start up a company I mean you have a lot of uh, I mean there's a lot of fun mm. but there's also a lot of decisions you have to make you know do you go left or do you go right mm -mm. and um, and now I don't want to sit here uh, 10 years after and say that, uh, that we were so smart and, mm. and, and everything went right because we were really smart mm -mm. I mean I have to admit there was also a little luck mm -mm. I mean sometimes you you, 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 you have a choice mm. to go left or right and you choose to go right mm. and there are pros and cons on both and then it turns out to be absolutely right Uh, one of the things we did right, for example, was we, we, we didn't transfer all the inter-Asia business from MERS to MCC overnight. Yeah. We spent a whole year slowly transferring mm. uh, the business over. Um, we, had already, we had already established that, that MERS really had to step out of inter-Asia if we and MCC were to be successful. Uh, otherwise, we would uh, compete against, each, compete other, against yeah. each other, and, and, and that would not have worked. We would have lost as mm. MCC because it's all Merce Lines containers. Mm. So uh, we would have lost. We needed our own right for, for containers based on our forecast, and without anyone from Merce uh, uh, in, in interfering in, in, in that. Um, so, so uh, we, we also had another choice we had to to, to make. Which was, you know, should we continue being a what's called a feeder operator? I mean, should we continue to serve other shipping lines, or should we now just focus on into Asia and then mm -hmm. carry Merce lines containers? And, and, and we chose to to continue being a feeder operator. And we, are, in fact, these days we are developing this further because it's actually more attractive in many corridors than the than the into Asia business in itself. And it's one of those where you know. We, we could have gone the other way. Yeah. We could actually have said, nah, you know, let's not do the feedering or let's do it in a separate mm. company or whatever. But then we said, no, let's just keep it because at least it gives us the flexibility. And man, that was a good, good idea. decision, right? That was, uh, yeah. So sometimes I have to say also, I mean, a little luck has to, has to be there as well. Always, and I, and I think there's a there's a saying that uh, success or favors the bold, or I mean, you, you need to take the, the, the you need to have the boldness, the courage to take action, right? And and, and you did, right? As a, as a group, Mersk um, rightfully looked strategically at the market and say, okay, let's let's do something. Um, and then indeed, it uh, it turned out to be to be right. And okay, I mean, indeed, I mean, there's always an element of luck, but uh, if you don't do, you can never be lucky. So. Oh, I, and then uh, and then you, know, I believed in this project. Yeah. I mean, I I really really strong believe that if we just did it the right way yeah. then we would be successful mm. and 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 I I, I asked the, the uh, at that time CEO for for Merskline I've been calling I, I I basically asked him for you know authority to do whatever I needed to do mm. without anyone interfering and and you know I'm thinking back you know what were like the the, the few Key decisions made by by me or by Merskline that that this actually mm. would would uh, would be successful and and I think one of the key decisions was really that that he basically said to me you know listen Tim you get five years you get five years and nobody will interfere mm. or tell you what to do of course we will seek advice and input from everyone in Merskline but basically the only one who can decide what MTC should do is you. 
I mean, that's that's an incredible faith, I, yeah. I, I thought. And you know, it's one of the things that, that I think is, is, is a learning, right? I mean, if, if you really believe in a person, and that person is very, very uh, eager and, and have strong belief, him or herself, in, in his project, then, you know, maybe take a chance with that mm. person. Mm-hmm. Maybe he said five years just to give me some time. Maybe in his head it was only two years or three years. I don't know. But... but but I really felt that okay, this is up to me. Mm-hmm. It's up to me to make successful. And and I've been, you know, the way I have run MCC, there has been some ideas coming from some country managers where I basically said, okay, you run with it. Then if you believe so strongly, and you know, tell me if I can do something to help you and and what you need. But you know, run yeah. run with it. And then of course follow it very closely. And if it goes the wrong way or I can mm-hmm. see it's not following the, the original plan, I might. I might tweak it. I tweak might tweak it. it, right? Mm. I mean, I, I, I saw that as a key role for me as CEO to tweak ideas mm. that my staff were, were, were doing. So, so having somebody really believes in what they do is right. Maybe sometimes we as leaders should gamble a little on, on these people and, and, and let them let them have the chance. Mm. You know, that's what people did on me, and, and it has it has worked. Mm. Okay, it could also have gone wrong, but it didn't. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and uh, and I think that's. Uh, that's that's that was very important, and that's that's a super powerful message because it's um, I mean it's it, it stands true for for business, it stands true for sports, it stands true for families, it stands true for a lot of of things. I mean the principle of trusting somebody, empowering that person to do, and that person typically will give his best, especially if he's also of course interested and believes in the project to 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 do much better than anybody else could have told him or her to do. Yeah, so yeah, it's a great it's a great sharing, great lessons. Thanks thanks. A lot for that, um, uh, Tim. So, um, if we had to move on a little bit, we've had a couple of very good questions regarding the shipping industry in general from right. our listeners. So, Christian Go asks, uh, "Do you think the trend of carrier consolidation will go on? Do you think there's going to be like you know three or four major players left in the future? Or what do you think will happen?" Um, well, I think even even I have been surprised by the speed of this. Uh, carrier consolidation you know I've always thought that so now we're looking outside into Asia because into Asia is very different into Asia still consists of more than 80 shipping lines and, uh, and I think the prospects for consolidation in into Asia is very different from from, uh, from the other trades um, but um, I've always said that that, I, that, that carrier consolidation is, is necessary but the speed that it has happened with has, has surprised even I Mm. I have to say, I, I do though think that we are more or less um, with the, with the latest announcement of of, of Costco and OCL and and, and I, I, mm, the Japanese going together and, and and the Koreans didn't go together, Hanjin and Hyundai, but then one disappeared and now yeah. the rest have kind of tried to forge some kind of cooperation. Um, I, I think maybe in terms of carrier consolidation, um, that this is maybe not so much. More to happen. Yeah, because I mean, yeah, sure, there can maybe be some regional players and, and so on. But the question is, will it happen through a merger or acquisition, or will it happen through just increased cooperation? Like, like uh, it's just been announced mm-hmm. that PIL here from mm-hmm. Singapore and, and Costco will, will have a, a cooperation, uh, and, and those fourteen remaining Korean shipping lines will have a cooperation. I mean, maybe that's more. The, the, the way it, it, it can happen, you know, maybe the Taiwanese will, will, will need to do some kind of cooperation instead of fighting each other. Uh, but will they actually 
merge, uh, I, I consolidate. I, I think mm, maybe not. But hey, I didn't expect this enormous uh, change in just two years' time. So, uh, so I, I can. You never know. Yeah, you I never know. Sure, yeah. but, but what's happening in Asia and the reason why it's different is, you know, Asia is is ten thousand port pairs. Mm. It, it's an incredible uh, spaghetti of uh, of of corridors and and. And you know all these eighty shipping lines seem to all help you know, their own connections, their own yeah. strength, mm-hmm. and so on. And, and because there's not so much uh, contracted cargo, because a lot is 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 on spot or short term uh, deals with with customers, a lot is controlled locally. Then, then if if a shipping line acquired another shipping line, then what what are you actually acquiring? Mm-hmm. Um, because you're not really acquiring the customers as such, because they are. 80 other alternatives out there and they can be priced away from you uh, in very short time mm. so you are not really you're acquiring more the assets so if somebody has great assets okay and you can get them cheaply fantastic but that's unlikely if the assets are great you're not going to get them cheaply yeah. and then what's the point mm. so, 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 so the and, and, and scale in Asia is, 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 is different you know many ports uh, that, that I remember seeing on, on, on LinkedIn there was also a question about vessel sizes mm-hmm. and um, the issue in Asia is that many of these ports cannot even take bigger vessels and people in Asia want frequency and they want flexibility and they want direct services so the argument for larger vessels in an Asia market is basically, is basically not there Mm. It's actually negative to have large vessels, mm-hmm. as I see it in, in, in Asia. And when I say large, I'm just talking a plus 3,000 TU vessels. Mm-hmm. That's already in my book too large for Asia. So, so if you consolidate to gain scale, you're getting a scale that's actually not that valuable, and you're anyway getting business you can lose tomorrow. Yeah. Um, mm. When I don't think this is confidential, I can maybe say that when Merskine took over P&O in 2005. P&O had a very large share of Asia business, but because Merce didn't have a, a big focus on Asia, we lost every single container in six months. Wow. And we are talking several hundred thousand FFEF containers gone in six months. And I think that just shows me that, that you know, if, if you don't have the right product and the right attention and the right pricing, the business is gone and it's gone quickly, quickly. Mm-hmm. very quickly mm-hmm. so I, I, I don't believe much in in consolidation here what I do think is very different in Asia from any other markets is there's tons of cooperation between competitors yeah where mm-hmm. people help each other and share share space because you can it's the world's biggest market there's so much cargo out there so you might as well if you if you can improve your own cost by, by sharing your ship with somebody else and they can then give you a new service which you couldn't actually do yourself mm. then why not do it yeah, um, yeah you're not really mm. giving up on a competitive advantage maybe, maybe some a few niche ports mm. you can maybe have a slightly competitive advantage you mm. want to protect but okay so let's say out of 10,000 corridors there may be 500 corridors that can be protected the rest cannot Mm-mm. so then you might as well Cooperate. And have access to a lot of others that you wouldn't have exactly. access to. Yeah. Exactly. And, and I think, mm. you know, that was one thing that I really had to get used to when I started in MERSC. Uh, sorry, I started in MCC. Mm. That 
whoa, this is very different into Asia. I mean, uh, mm. we as a we as also a feeder operator, so so we are faced with this situation in MGC that you know sometimes the other carriers are our competitors, mm. sometimes they are our partners if we cooperate and, and swap slots, and sometimes they're actually our customers if we feeder for them in smaller ports. So you know, relationships. It's a very hybrid, uh, very changing dynamics. So, so it's a totally different mindset on how you interact in the industry mm-hmm. compared to the other trades. And a lot more interactive. I mean, yeah, interconnected and interactive. Yes. Um, then uh, Ricardo, Ricardo Daza was asking, and, and Ricardo is, is from a different continent, so he's asking, what advice would Tim give to logistics professionals looking to develop, improve relationships with suppliers and service providers, specifically intra, intra-Asia? Yeah, I'm not sure I, I understand the question 100%, but it actually gives me the chance to talk about the um, partnership. Mm. Because I actually didn't mention this before when we talked about what MCC did uh, differently. But when when we set up mm. MCC, we had to come up with this. Uh, of course, you know, you, you need like a tagline mm-hmm. to, your, to your slogan, and, and and we spent a long time thinking about that and came up with your intro Asia partner. Mm. Initially, actually, the thought was because, as I mentioned before. We are both competitors, partners, customers uh, for, for a lot of entities in, in the industry in, in Asia. But quite quickly I realized that, that in Asia, it's actually a little similar to, to South America. I worked two years in Argentina and, and their relationship is also incredibly important. But I realized that this word partnership is actually something that you can turn into some kind of um, competitive advantage and something that I definitely needed to rethink uh, mm. from my, my, my 18 years in, in, in Merskline. Um, because out here in Asia, the, 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 the human relationship and the partnership feeling that you need to have with your customers, mm. with your suppliers, with Yes, sometimes even competitors and, and, and even government institutions is unbelievably important. Um, it took me probably a couple of years before I, I actually realized that mm. I, I, I would admit. But this is one of the reasons I've been traveling and traveling and traveling. You know, there was one year where my secretary, who, who um, what is it called? She, she takes care of all my business cards. And she said, you do know that this year you have got more than 1,000 business cards, just this year. Wow. And I thought, okay, that's a lot in one year. <laughs> but yeah. but, but it, is, it is, actually, I think it's one of the reasons why we, we are seen as a very approachable and, uh, and actually as a partner. Mm. You know, people use this partnership left, right and center. But sure. It's an empty word. It's an empty yeah. word. Mm-hmm. But we are actually dead serious about it. I, I, I always believe that, you know, there has to be, there cannot be a winner and a loser Mm-mm. in a partnership. That's Mm-mm. not possible. Mm-mm. Because then the loser will, will at first possible opportunity leave the partnership. Yeah. And then it wasn't actually a partnership. Right? So, so, so we in MCC sometimes forego short-term profit, I would say, with the mindset of a longer-term partnership benefit. Yes, mm-hmm. and, and same goes with our relationship with, with, with terminals. You know, terminals is a, is a big part of our 
ecosystem. Uh, ecosystem, and, and we pay a lot of money to turn mm-hmm. sometimes too much, yeah. if you ask my honest opinion. But again, they have to live, and 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 what we try to do with them is rather than say, okay, we'll we'll pay you this if you can do this for us. I mean, again, establish these win-win scenarios. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I don't know where Ricardo is, is 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 from in the world, but 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 if he was coming to uh, to Asia. Uh, my strong recommendation would be to create as many personal relationships as possible and share or really seriously try to understand the drivers of the other person mm. because everyone has their own world picture yeah. right I mean you might think you know something but but you, you've got to put yourself in the other one's shoes okay if, if, if because it doesn't matter what you believe. It is act- what matters is what the other one perceives as being the truth, right? yeah. and, and you have to understand that. You really, really have to. Yeah, and how? I mean, how can you bridge the gap? And uh, it's, it's, um, it's, it, I'm happy that you touched upon this this uh, topic of partnership. It's true. I mean, it's a devoid of content. A lot of people actually after the win lose, or I mean, they they, they end yeah, up in yeah. this game, and it doesn't work. Long term, doesn't work. And I mean, it's uh, and especially in the interconnected space of intra Asia, you cannot because I mean, if you screw somebody today, yeah, yeah, yeah. they will they will do the same for you tomorrow. I mean, it's, it just doesn't work. So, and, and you know, yeah. I think one of the issues is that people sometimes people think that they didn't do anything to to screw the other person mm. and they might not understand and, and what I keep selling my, my own stuff is but but it doesn't matter what they think what matters is what the other party thinks so whether you think you've done something right or wrong it doesn't really matter because mm. if the other party thinks that this was not right or something is wrong then that's what matters mm. if, if we want to have business dealings with that person then that's not the that that's not partnership. Then yeah. right? the, the, it, it it will never end up in a win-win okay. uh, like that. So so think rather on on what the perception is, mm. uh, and, and that goes for actually anything in life. What is the perception of the other person rather than what you think is right? Yeah. No. no. Yeah. Um, a hot topic from uh, Kasu now, and I think he speaks for a lot. And I think this this is a buzzword that everybody or a lot of people use: blockchain. So the question is, how will blockchain impact and change the shipping value chain, and what needs to happen for it to occur in the shipping industry? I mean, oh, I am. I also want to learn more about blockchain. To 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 be honest, I I think. Um, MCC has maybe taken a slight back step and, and let Maersk front a lot of various initiatives with 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 Alibaba, with IBM. With IBM is a famous one. Actually. It's a famous one. Uh, there's actually a YouTube video as well, uh, about it, which, which, which I have seen. Um, the, the, you know, I, I'm probably not... First of all, I'm, I'm maybe not enough familiar with it and, and secondly I think we are just at, at still the learning stage mm. because these initiatives are, are also just to learn and learn and learn and learn the, the only thing I can say is just there is an incredible amount of bureaucracy and paperwork mm. in shipping that I don't think people actually understand and if shipping in general could be made just slightly more uh, seamless it would make it would make life so easy for so many people. Um, the only thing to be aware of is, of course, that a lot of people is involved in this today in, in, in shipping goods from A to B. Anything from customs, quarantines, uh, Authority, inspections, sports, authorities, yeah. sports, anyone. And, and, and of course, the more people and paper you take out of that equation, 
the less people have work. Mm. And that is maybe how they uh, serve their family and, and create a livelihood in the country they are in. Mm. And, 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 and of course, that, that can be, a, I would say, a, not a restricting factor because this is going to happen. Definitely, regardless. But, but, but maybe a delaying factor. Yeah. Um, because people, of course, will will will, f- will fight it if, if you stand to lose your job. And I mean, there's going to be some some deep social implications to actually yes. uh, across the board technology. I mean, uh, slowly permutating all these uh, these industries, and definitely blockchain will lead to that. But indeed, uh, would we be better without so much paper? Well, probably we would. Oh, most <laughs> definitely. I mean, some of it is ridiculous. Yeah. It, it really is ridiculous. Yeah. And and it just creates frustrations yeah so and time wasted in a lot yeah, of stuff. I mean this has to happen yeah um, Axel Axel Hershauser has a very good question given the strong increase in volumes and, and stagnant freight rates who do you think will be the winners in the intra-Asian container trade so now I should say MCC no <laughs> for sure <laughs> uh, I mean uh, yeah. hey it's a, it's, it's a difficult it's a difficult market and, and of course many many players and, and we have asked ourselves many times you know so how how can we differentiate ourselves I, I think the winner will be those that can actually differentiate themselves one way or the other because almost any corridor you will have between five and ten shipping lines who has the same freight rate similar ships similar transit time similar closings everything similar so who will the customers choose um, I think definitely technology and digitization is something which, uh, which maybe not yet, but soon will be a differentiator. I think those shipping lines that, that actually truly can make life easy for the customers, truly, so that the customers really see a value in it, um, I think definitely they, they, they will benefit. Then, then, I mean, for all shipping lines, the, the what we call the unit cost, uh, basically um, the, the the total cost of, of shipping a container, which both depends on the cost you pay, but also the utilization of your ships and, and what you can actually do, uh, is fundamental when the freight rates are very low, as they are in in Asia. Um, yeah. um, I hope also that reliability at some point in time will become more important and more valued in Asia. I think at the moment it's, it's maybe not because, you know, there are shipping lines with three, four sailings a week. So if your Monday sailing is delayed, there's another ship Tuesday evening or Wednesday morning. And therefore reliability is, 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 maybe, is maybe a little less important in Asia for a lot of goods than some of the other trades because the frequency is so... Is, is, is so uh, Strong MTC is a quite re- reliable shipping line because of all our feedery from Maersk and other shipping lines. So we have to be on time in the in 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 the hot ports, as, as mm. it's called. Mm. So for us, it's a differentiator. But I just don't think the Asian market values that so much yet. Uh, yet. Um, and yeah, and you probably. I mean, I'm pretty sure you're right. Actually, the more the more time will go, the more it's going to become important. Yes. Um, but back to the point, because it feeds into the next in, in uh, next question. In terms of technology, what do you think, Tim? What's what do you think the the technologies that will really have the most impact for shipping in the next years? I mean, if we look at the travel industry, the bank industry, where where everyone is doing everything by themselves now. Um, you know, if if a shipping line could come up with something where 
where you, you have an e-commerce platform where the container is automatically assigned mm. to a booking that comes in immediately so the customers can actually you know, see where it is. Well, see where it is. He's been able to do for for, for a very long time. Mm. But you know, when, when when you make the booking, there's still people in the in the back end that have to allocate a container and so on to to that to that booking. If 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 that could be totally automated, I mean, just like when you book with an airline and then you have a seat and you even have 23C immediately, and then you you, you actually don't need any more interaction with that shipping line. Oh, sorry, airline. Mm. If we could get to that in 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 shipping, I think it would be. A, I, I think that could be a, a major winner. Mm. Uh, if somebody could do that, I think this thing Maersk has just uh, announced also for for refrigerated containers. This remote uh, container management, uh, yeah. where where you can actually see the temperature of your, you can see a snapshot of the con- temperature of your container. With, with your goods inside no matter where it is in the world I mean it's, it's absolutely amazing yeah. absolutely amazing I mean if I were shipping fruits for bananas from Philippines to, to China I mean and you can ripe, that, ripe it and you ripe it whilst it's on the, on the cargo on the way yeah but, but I mean that's happening already but now you can actually follow the yeah, process yeah, you, quite, quite. you can track it, it, it the, it's yeah. one of those big worries that, that, that fruit or refrigerated shippers always have had it's mm. suddenly actually taken out of the equation and I think, uh, and, and actually, I think there's even a, a, a premium version of it where you, if you pay a little, you can actually even download the data yourself. You don't just get the Snapchat uh, mm-hmm. or the snapshot, mm-hmm. but but you actually can can download and keep the data. I mean, I think that's an amazing development. And I know it's taken several years to to do, and of course, a lot of cost. Mm-hmm. You need to have that chip into all the containers, but but it's just one of those things that really improves the shipping of refrigerated containers and so, so I mean there are still innovations coming and, and, and those people who can come up with innovations again a lot of it in the digitized space I, I have to say so increasing increasing uh, digitalization visibility yes. traceability uh, transparency of course yeah. um, and plus I mean as you said it is it is probably costs a lot now today uh, to have those units but in one year two years I mean the cost per unit goes down every year and um, I was at the, there was a conference last week Tech, tech X in, mm-hmm. uh, in Singapore, they talked a lot about technologies in, in logistics and shipping. 3D printing, for example, I mean, the cost yes, for one yes. of those things were, I don't know, thousands of dollars, now it's $500. So yeah. that we will see, continue to see the cost going yeah. down. But indeed, whoever is going to be the first, among the first to implement it, uh, they will be there. I'm glad nobody asked me about the effect of 3D printing to shipping, because I think that, <laughs> I think that is still an enormous question mark that yeah. even I have myself, you know, and, and people are very split on this. So uh, Let's leave it for today, but indeed, that can be yeah, very interesting. Now, if you would be an investor, if you had uh, you know, one of these private equity companies, which shipping-related startup would you invest in? Is there any name that would come to mind? I, I would not want to give any names, mm. that's, that's for sure. But um, there's a lot of interesting uh, going on in, yeah. uh, in, in the digitization space. Yeah. And um, I, I think one of the places where I think carriers may be going a little wrong is that they try to develop their own uh, fantastic e-commerce solution and I don't think that's what the market wants mm. and I also don't think it's the solution of the future I think the solution is more portals which can actually cover all all the carriers I, I, I you know like an uh, Agoda or Hotels.com or whatever right 
where, where, where even there you can find Expedias and Trivagos and, and so on and so on. So, so I mean, the, the, the winner will rather be those portals where so, so a customer actually only has to go one place and then he will have the whole thing covered. Not aggregators. Sh- it's an aggregator. Absolutely. Not just shipping lines. I'm also talking here, you know, custom brokers, uh, maybe even forwarders uh, for, for, or truckers for, for pre and on carriage. Uh, basically, the whole, the whole chain, you can do it, yeah. And then you can choose, you know, who, who you want to use. Um, and I think all the money carriers are spending developing their own portals. I mean, hey, this is just my opinion, and I'm mm. not an expert, but this is just my view. Those portals will be nothing else than connected to the real portals that all people, all customers actually would want to use. Mm. I, I don't think, I don't think customers would want to go to the carriers' websites. Uh, really, they, they they don't. Customers want to have alternative. They want to have five or six choices, and that they can get in an aggregated. Mm. Mm. Yeah. In terms of hardware, I mean. I mean, when you look at it, I mean, who, who, who makes the money these days in in the supply chain? I mean, let's just face it, it's the terminals. Mm. So, so, so I still think if I had a bunch of, of, of money, I, I still think there's a... Put it on a terminal. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the returns are at least... Uh, quite a bit better. Quite a bit better. <laughs> then. And, and, and it's more stable. But, of, hey, terminals also have risks. Yeah. Uh, major risks. Major risks, and, uh, actually, yeah. yeah. And, who knows? and now you have all these natural disasters happening as well. So then, uh, oh, then that's a different I mean, that's a, ball game. Yeah, so that's a disaster for sure. This is the end of part one. Stay tuned for part two, where we talk more about recruitment, talent, and skills gaps.